0: Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah Lutheran Church's Bible study class, led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week, we are continuing our series over the book of Revelation. Enjoy. All right,
1: well, let's get into our study then for today, Revelation 2, 12 to 29. And we're looking at a couple more churches here. So let's start with... Uh, with the first verse, to the angel of the church at Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live. I love that. Where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Wow, pretty... uh, pretty tough indictment in, in terms of the city itself. All right, so we remember what the pattern is here as, as the Holy Spirit, as Jesus and the Holy Spirit are talking to John, and they're, they're addressing some issues going on in these cities, and then also in the churches that are located in the cities. And so there's a, a little bit of a pattern of sort of like, well, the good news and the bad news, right? And so the bad news is, or the good news is here, is in terms of the faithfulness and the, the way in which the people in the church at Pergamum were handling themselves, even though they are located in a... Uh, in a community that was very much given over to the worship of Greek gods, obviously, rather than the worship of the true God. So let's, uh, a few notes here about the city of Pergamum. It was the northernmost city of the seven of the churches. Pergamum was built on a high hill, giving the impression that it was a city of authority. It was noted for its vast library and emphasis on academic and intellectual achievement. Literary archivists had developed excellent means of recording books on animal skins since the Egyptians had cornered the market on parchment, papyrus, and vellum. The Egyptians had boycotted Pergamum, thus forcing the invention of new media. Isn't that interesting? I mean, we always think, oh, that stuff only happens like today. But here we have boycotts, and here we have cornering the market, and here we have somebody who says, hey, I'm just not going to sell you that. And then what that does is it forces the the innovation or the creation of a new way of, uh, of writing and a new way of, more importantly, preserving what was written. So that gives you a little sense of the, the community. Now, one of the things that that I think is interesting to me in terms of the difference of what was going on in that day and what we might say is going on in our day. And I just want to throw it out there and just kind of leave it there sort of hanging, and then we'll see if it has any uh, merit to, uh, to our discussion today. But one of the things that is a difference is, is that these Greek cities were already in existence their economies were already set sort of, this is how we do things. Their religions were already in place. And then what happens is the Christians come into that community and what they do is they set up a church, most notably for, through the efforts of St. Paul, but other of the apostles, they, they, they uh, found a church or plant a church right in that community. And now as people are converted to the faith, Those people that are converted to the faith are coming from that community. And so, in some sense of it, we can appreciate the difficulty that that would have placed them in. Because their friends and their family and their neighbors and their uh, co-workers and the people that they did business with were all people who were pagan. And now you have these people who come in and become converted to Christianity. And the difficulty is for them was, well, does that mean I have to cut off all of my contact? Do I have to exclude myself from the people that I grew up with, that I went to school with, the people that I do business with, the people that I have uh, fellowship with on a regular basis, people that we party with? People that that speak the same language as I do. People that eat the same food. People that, that enjoy the same kind of entertainment that I do. Do I now, as a Christian, who has an entirely different set of beliefs, not just different, just radically different, right? Do I have to cut off from them in order to remain pure in my faith? Or can I... Maintain those relationships that I have with them, but if I do, how do I keep their paganism from infecting the newness, if you will, of my spiritual walk? Does that make sense and so to have some a little empathy for that because because that is one of those things that maybe is just a little bit unique to our setting here, for example, you know when you when a lot of times when uh, when, when church planters go into an area to plant a church, there's already, I wouldn't say, oh, Christians everywhere, but there are enough Christians there that can draw on that, and that creates that foundation. That's, a, that's way different than going into a setting where there aren't any Christians. And here we we are going to establish and plant this church. So, as as we think about this today, with respect to Pergamum, but also as we think about the other churches, to I think to have a little bit of maybe empathy or just a little bit of appreciation for the the the. Uh, The courage that it took to do that. But then also what people might have had to have sacrificed in terms of the way that they did their life now that they have a life with Jesus. Because of the fact, again, as we're going to read, that a life with Jesus would necessarily create some tension in people's lives. Particularly when it came to Caesar worship. You know, the way that you did business in those days was Caesar worship as long as you did caesar worship then you could make a living you could go to parties you could invite be invited to the best of things but if you did if you refused to do that because your christian faith said we don't worship a human god we worship the god god what sort of cost that might be okay so kind of sort of let that float up in your head somewhere and uh, we'll see where it goes in our in our discussion all right so so the angel says to the church at pergamum I know where you live. (laughs) Don't you love saying that to somebody? You know, don't mess with me. I know where you live. Okay? Yeah. Or better, I know your parents. How about that one? Yeah. (laughs) Okay? Where Satan has his throne. Pergamum considered itself the custodian and defender... Of the Greek way of life and its worship of idols. So one of the things we want to understand is that there was not so much a separation of church and state, or or uh, or state and economy, or church and economy. In other words, the idea was was that if you're one, you're the. If you're a Greek, you worship the Greek gods. That was just a given, right? And so again, see, the idea that, that Christians are going to come into that and, and start to talk about the idea that, um, I, yes, I am Greek, but I'm not worshiping the Greek gods, that would just be like, oh my gosh, what, what, are you, what are you trying to do to us? Caesar worship was strictly enforced there, and the Christians then were harassed and persecuted and under constant pressure to give in to the community's norms of life. That we can relate to. Because that's exactly what's going on in our world and much in our society today. That the, the drumbeat is, is that you Christians or you believers are, and then that's fill in the blank with all the adjectives that go with that. There's a constant like Chinese water drippage, right? That torture of just drip, 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 drip. And if, if we're not on top of our game, so to speak, if we're not, uh, cognizant of that, right? It's just easy over time to start to do what? To start to kind of give in to your morals, to give in to your beliefs, to give in to uh, the the fact that the word speaks very clearly about many things that people today say the word is irrelevant about, you know, social issues and and moral immorality uh, and things like that. So that's what was going on as well for this uh, young church. So he says, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. You would have covered that last week. Now, I know it's a lot to ask for me to ask you if you remember something from last week. Okay, I know it's a lot to ask. But, but there have been other times in, uh, when that double-edged sword idea is talked about. So what does that mean, the double-edged sword? What's he talking about? The word. Yeah, very good. Oh, gold star, right? Okay. Okay. <laughs> But what does that mean, a double-edged sword? In what way is the word a double-edged sword? What does a double-edged sword do? Cuts both ways. All right, that's what it does. All right, right, so how is the word, in what way does the word cut both ways? Oh, the great Lutheran answer, I love it. (laughs) Awesome. All right, it does. All right. So in what way does the sword as the law, what does it do? It cuts to the heart, right? Cuts to the heart. So what does the law do? What's its purpose? Now we got confirmation 101. Now now I'm asking you to go way back in your long-term memory, which for some people is more accurate than short-term memory. So um, what is, uh, what's the three purposes of the law? Show us our need of a savior by doing what? Showing us our sin. Yeah. So if you think you don't have sin, just start working through the commandments and you'll find one that applies to you, <laughs> right? Namely, the first one. How about that one? Okay, all right. So it shows us our sin. And then therefore, when we realize that we're sinners, then we realize what? That we're in need of salvation, of a savior. Okay, so that's the first use of the law. What's the second use of the law? Or another use of the law?
2: the curve and access a curve to keep us...
1: On the straight and narrow, right? Just like a curb on the street. Have you noticed that some curbs are taller than others? Yes. Some are like that, and they don't work so good. So it kind of depends on the you know, speed of the vehicle and the nature of the curve, that sort of thing. But that's the, it's a curb. So it kind of says, here's where the boundaries are. Here's where the lines are. And yeah, you might cross the line. You might cross the boundary. But by golly, you're going to know where that line was. Okay? Again... In our world today, the lines are blurry. The world will say, you know what? Everybody gets to decide what's truth in their own mind. Everybody gets to decide what's right and wrong in their own mind. And anybody that tries to tell them otherwise is being controlling. Right? And that's what the world says. And there's a lot of people that buy into that because who likes to be controlled? Right? Nobody.
2: But the curve is still there.
1: Yes, and I like how you pointed at me when you said that. Just... <laughs> You know, that was very good. That was a very, that was a very like, very teachable moment right there. Yeah. No, I love that. That's excellent. But you, Because you did it with a smile. And so then I wasn't sure what you meant, you know, that was very, very tricky. All right. And then what's the third one? Third use of the law. Hmm. No, well, the mirror is the show me my sin kind of thing. I look in the mirror and what do I see? Even though I try to fake it out all the time. Right. Okay. The third use of the law, somewhat controversial in Lutheran circles, but um, I was taught this, is uh, that it acts as a guide for Christians to know what does the Christian life consist of. Okay, so I could go through the commandments and I could say, okay, uh, 1 through 10, this is what a God-pleasing life looks like. This is what a life looks like that, that when you're already saved... Uh, and you want to live a life that is reflective of that, then this is what you do. So what do you do? You worship God, and you don't curse and swear, and you remember the Sabbath, and you honor your parents, and you honor your parents, and then um, doesn't mean you obey them. It just means you honor them. We We do distinguish between the two when you're over 21, and then you don't kill, you don't steal, you be faithful in your marriage, you know, you don't covet. I mean, you think about it really as a guide. If we would all just kind of do those things as a guide, I think that we could say that our relationships would be much better and uh, the world might be better. Okay. But that's the idea of it. So, so doing the law doesn't save you. The third use of the law is that you're already saved. You already have salvation, but you wanted to live it out every day. Okay. That's what that is. So, So the double-edged sword is that the law on the one hand, uh, or the word on the one hand, convicts us of our need for a Savior. All right, that's what it does. And then on the other hand, what the word also does is gives to us that reassurance and that relief that through Christ Uh, and what he did for us uh, in life, death, and resurrection, that that is our salvation. That is um, the joy that we have. So it cuts both ways. That's the idea of it. Okay, great. I knew, uh, Richard, that you covered that last week, but I just wanted to um, hit that again. All right, so he says... He's, he, what he does is he commends them. So that's, that's the pattern here, is the good news is, in spite of all the bad stuff going on in the, in the town and the community around you, here is what I commend you for. He said, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. When would they have been tempted to do that? To renounce their faith in Jesus alone? Is when that was put before them that they have to say what? What? Caesar's Lord, that's right, yeah. And to some degree, in some of these communities, it wasn't that big a deal. I mean, really, when you think about it, isn't that a little bit of the compromise of faith that we're sometimes tempted to say, is that we just say, well, okay, Caesar's Lord. And then we got it out of the way, and now I can go on with my life, and I can do what I knew, make a a living, and send my kids to the best school, and I can do all those things, Because I just said these words that really, actually, don't mean anything. I mean, really. I mean, couldn't I just say Caesar's Lord with my hands tied behind my back? Couldn't I just do that, and that would be okay? Because after all, in my heart, I know that Jesus is Lord. And okay, if the government's making me say Caesar's Lord, okay, isn't what? What's the big deal? So the question is, what is the big deal? Or are we just making it a big deal?
2: You're not a witness that way. If you're to others, if you say it out loud that you're going to worship Caesar, then you're not a witness to those that hear it.
1: True, but couldn't they just, like, get over it? Because, you know... (laughs) And also,
2: you're speaking, and I've often thought of this. Like, if someone were to... uh, torture my children and maybe I could resist but if they torture my children am I going to say out loud I re- reject Jesus so they'll quit but then in thinking okay in my heart Jesus knows that that's a lie that I really believe in him right. and I'm not rejecting him right. but Jesus doesn't expect us to do that I know. does he? He expects us you know, to go through persecution or whatever it takes, but don't reject out loud. Is that correct? <laughs> I mean, I can't say it out loud. Or, even if it's in my heart that I believe. Right. And what you're saying is, worship Caesar, but I really don't believe that. And I'm really not going to do that. And also, as I said, is this a witness to other people around
1: you? Do you see me kind of backing up as you say that? No, and I'm not. No, no. So, so this was one of the real um, realities of life in that, in that era. And I think that for a lot of people in the world today, that is the reality of Christianity. Not, I mean, we sort of get annoyed at what we call persecution here, but nobody's threatening our lives. In other countries, there are pastors, Christian pastors, being thrown into prison, you know, in different uh, countries where Christianity is not um, appreciated. And it's seen as a threat. So we'll just throw this guy in prison because he's leading other people to Christ. That doesn't stop the message from going out, but it puts a real risk on it. So one of the things that the Bible does do in the New Testament in particular it's not that it's providing an out. What it is is it's providing a comfort for people who would be in the situation of the, the dire threat that somebody's going to put a sword or something, a noose around your kid's neck. And in that moment, that person is going to be required to renounce his faith in Jesus in order to save the life of their kid. And what happens in those situations is that the person may say the words, but not really believe it, or may even be thinking, what a terrible position to be put in for the sake of Jesus. I will give my life for Jesus. I don't know that I want to give the life of my kid for Jesus, okay? And so the, there's, a, there's a teaching in the, in the New Testament in particular that sometimes gets misunderstood, but it's the teaching or the doctrine of predestination, that where this idea that, that Jesus says, I know who my own are, and I've known that since before the creation of the world. So even if you falter in the moment of death or that death could occur because of your faith. Even if you you feel the weakest that you ever felt and you thought, oh my gosh, if my salvation is dependent on how strong I feel my faith is in that moment, forget it, right? That's where the doctrine of predestination steps in and Jesus says, you know, I've known that you are mine ever since the beginning, and even if you falter in that moment, that does not stop me from loving you, forgiving you, and taking you home to be with me. So some people would say, oh, well then that's our out. Well, no, that isn't your out. If, you, if you're thinking that way, you're not really um, thinking in terms of the the cost that sometimes faith is. But it is a reassurance. That's what it's intended for. It's a reassurance that even when we are in our weakest moment, which I guarantee you, every single one of us would be in that moment if that was the uh, if that was the condition. The good news is is that that our weakness of faith in that moment would not change how God feels about us. See.
2: Oh well, and I agree with what you're saying. Oh, good. <laughs> A strong
1: believer, though, as you know, that you certainly know. We've been over. Well, it's just that. See, it is that. It's that line. I mean, it's that thing. You know. Okay, once saved, always saved. Or, you know, could I fall away? Can I not fall away? Can I give up on my faith? Can I not give up on my faith? So let's just not go there, Peggy. Okay, let's just okay, not go there. Also, okay.
2: To make it clear, I don't believe that I would lose my faith by saying. Lord, don't, or stop torturing my children, and Lord, I'm going to say, okay, I don't believe in Jesus, but in my heart I do. So I know that I'm not going to lose my faith by doing that, but the point that I made to begin with is that it's a witness, and so is that that a bad thing because people around...
1: Yeah, and that's a legitimate thing because in these early churches, um, they are located in an area where, okay, you Christians... You say, you got this great thing going for you, uh, what, what, what price are you willing to pay for that? And if I'm not willing to pay that price because I say, well, I don't want to lose all the goodies that I have that go with pagan worship at the same time that I want the goody of salvation, the, the, hypocr- the hypocrisy of that could have an impact on the witness. And, that, and that's a big deal here, the witness. We'll get into some of the other aspects of it. But, um, but see, that's why, th- that's why I throw it out there for us to think about that. Because, because to some degree, yeah, okay, nobody's putting a sword to anybody's face here. But there is pressure here to conform to the way that the world thinks and more and more we're seeing that the world is accusing Christian churches of being discriminatory, of being exclusive, of not being interested in in sort of worldly things and to some degree yes and no we are, but sometimes we don't say it enough. But that that's that pressure's there. And so the question that I'm sort of sort of throwing out there for us is that in the face of that pressure where the pressure is to Maybe not give up, but let's just say, give up on, but let's just say, sort of twist a little bit in terms of what the Word says, because the Word has a lot of absolutes in it. This is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. And that just annoys the socks off of the world, because the world says not everything is black and white, not everything is right and wrong, not everything is good and bad. Well, that's true. Not everything is, right? Right? but we still have a standard by which we believe and a standard by which we uh, teach and a standard by which we operate. And the question always is, is how do I as a Christian do that in a world that could care less about that? Or a world that says, you can't do that. You can't do that. Some of us are, I'm thinking of teachers, I'm thinking of counselors, I'm thinking of other people that are licensed by the state to do certain things. There are certain things we cannot do. Certain things we cannot say. And so as the pressure grows to not only be, some, be in a situation where you're governed by what you cannot say, but you're also governed by people who are saying, and then you have to accept this. Or you have to promote that. Or you have to embrace this. Or you have to uh, support that. That's where it's getting harder and harder. To be that Christian, particularly to be a biblically conservative Christian in that profession, that's getting harder and harder to do. And there might be some price tag that goes along with that. So, you know, this is a real thing, okay? This is a real thing. Okay, got a few hands up. Yeah, Glenn.
2: The ultimate sacrifice made ever was when God allowed his own son to die. So that we might be saved mm-hmm. So
0: when you think of it that way,
1: yeah, pales in comparison, know, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. You yeah. know, it, that sacrifice was major, but look at the difference it made for the world.
1: The whole world. So we want to keep that in, in in view, don't we? That why we do what we do is based on what has already been done for us, and and that doesn't get taken away. Okay, um, Jesus talks about that that there could be loss in this life, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean loss in the life to come. I mean, if you remember the gospel reading for this morning, how many of you remember that? It's a lot to ask. I know that you would remember an hour ago. Okay. Um, Yeah, digging for it already. All right. But, But what does he say? Whoever loves his life in this life will lose it. But whoever hates his life in this life will what? Have it in the life to come. And so we have to keep remembering that, that sometimes we get, and I know I'm guilty of this, we get too enamored with this life. And we think, well, this is all there is. Now, we know that isn't all there is. We know that, hello, in our heads, right? But sometimes you get caught up in it, and, and then it becomes this kind of thing where, oh my gosh, what am I going to lose? What am I going to lose? And, and that's when we need a little bit of an attitude check, you know, we need a little bit of a... Hmm, 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 right and and then we go okay wait a minute i got my head on straight again okay armin
2: it's a parental instinct god put it in all parents to you know take care of our children i mean it's natural yeah
1: take care of children
0: yeah we'll
2: give our life for our children sure but christians know that our children are really ultimately a gift from god
0: yeah parents
2: in other words The ultimate outcome of our children rests in the hands of God, not us. Right. So it's hard because sometimes there's a conflict, as with Abraham and Isaac, but however, it's in God's hands. Yeah.
1: I mean, you love them to death, but don't you want to strangle them from time to time, you know? Yeah, I know. Yes. By the way, did everybody notice that Jill Wilmer is here today? You know? She's the mom of a former pastor here. I just thought I'd mention that. (laughs) How's he doing, by the way? And
2: I'm here.
1: I'm yeah. Now, let's talk about that little issue there. Why don't we talk about that? Yeah. That's what happens when pastors go on vacation. Okay? I know that you all think that we're constantly in church all the time when we're, uh, when we're on vacation. So just keep, just keep that thought. That's a good thought. Do what? He's
2: been marking. He has 12
1: baptisms. The oh, fantastic. That's great. Yeah. Well, we knew that he would... We knew that he would make a difference there, and we also knew that he would flourish once he got under the protective arm of the pastors here, and that was a good, no, yeah, I know I I got this whole string of texts on my phone, you know, from, what do I do in this situation? And I'm very loving when I just say, figure it out, you know. I know. I love your son, and I just think he—I think the world of him, and uh, I miss him somewhat. And then, but he—but I'm so I'm so pleased that he's in a place where he can be himself, and then he can figure out what to do with people that are not comfortable with that. When you're by yourself, you're the guy. So you don't have the protection of the senior, and then the other guy, and then sort of the gauntlet people have to run through in order to get to you. You're the guy, so you get to figure out kind of mostly the hard way where the minefields are, where the sacred cows are, where all the things are that you should have known but nobody told you. Okay, that's that's the good stuff. So he will flourish in that, and he's got the perfect uh, aptitude for that. You know, I don't know. Does he get that from you, or he get that from his dad? Oh, he does. He does. Yeah. So anyway, well, while he's here, I hope I see him, but maybe I need to leave the church property in order to do that. So we'll see. uh, We'll see what happens. All right, well, let's keep on going. You know what? The pace we're going, I don't think we're going to get through the lesson for today. So I want you to, to enjoy the fact that under Richard's tutelage, you were able to get through the whole lesson. You know, and that was awesome. Thank you so much. All right, well, let's see what the bad news is here. All right? He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. All right, so let's talk a little bit about Balaam and uh, Balak. A little note there, though the church remained faithful as a whole, they allowed within their midst some members who remained loyal to the cult of Balaam. Balak was the Old Testament king of Moab, that was a descendant of Lot, He persuaded the prophet Balaam to curse the people of God and then led them to compromise their faith and their morals. And so the way that 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 compromise uh, showed up was that was an enticement to sin. Now, it's very interesting the particular sin that is mentioned here. All right, because there's sin and then there's sin. Now, I'm not suggesting as the Catholics do that there's mortal sin and venial sin as if somehow one is worse than the other. Well, one is worse than the other in terms of the effect it might have on yourself and your relationship and society. Mortal sins like murder, for example, okay, that would have a greater effect on all those things. But sometimes when we break sin up in terms of categories of sin, then we think, okay, God must not feel as bad about this one as he would feel about that one. That isn't the way the Scriptures present sin as far as God is concerned. What is the number one most major effect of any sin in terms of a relationship with God? It separates us from God. Sin, the nature of sin is is that it separates me from the perfect God. That's what it does. So whether we're talking about sin of a little tiny thing that, oh, nobody knew about it but you, well, and God, right? Or a big sin that everybody knew, and of course God, all right? Sin is sin, and that's how God approaches it, all right? That's why Jesus as the bridge was the perfect bridge, but Jesus was frankly the only bridge that could be the bridge, right? Because he's the perfect one, right? That's perfection. He's like God. He's 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 divine, and yet at the same time, he was sacrificed to pay the price for our sin. That, that's like the perfect solution for uh, the problem of uh, of sin. So so again, the 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 uh, the thing that happened was is that because because this congregation. Probably in their love for each other and the desire to be as welcoming to the community as they could possibly be, they did not want to say no to these people that were holding to this particular cult. Can you see that happening in a loving Lutheran church? Yes because the love for people and the hope that we could influence those people away from their pagan ways just by osmosis of being with all of us that that would show that we are not that we are non-exclusive. Can you see that happening today? Sure, of course. All right? But the problem is is that in doing that what they did not do was confront The people who believe that certain way and say, we welcome you, and we love you, and we want you to be a part of us, but at the same time, you have to renounce what you're doing. You have to renounce what you're teaching. They just said, well, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We don't want to offend anybody, because if we do that, that would send the wrong message to the community, because then the community will say, oh, those Christians, they only like each other. That's a dilemma, isn't it? And it's a tension, you see, that we in the Christian church live today. It's really, I don't, it's not a gray area. I mean, it's pretty much of a right-wrong area. But the problem is that tension means that we're living in the middle of the polarity between the two. And as Lutherans, we relish that. But as Christians, it's really hard to do, okay? Okay. And that's why I think we need the fellowship of believers. We need a commitment in the word. We need to be in communion and worship and kind of all those things that have kind of taken a hit during COVID. We need all of that so that we can keep our head on straight because it really is a challenge to kind of go, oh boy, how do we love everybody at the same time that we recognize that there are certain beliefs and teachings that will steer people away from God. And so how do I convey that to somebody at the same time that I love them? If you're somebody's parent and it's your kid, you can do it easier, but what if it's not? And even then I say easier because sometimes when our kids go off to school, they come back and they know more than we do. It's hard to talk to them like that, okay? So some applicability of what is they're dealing with here is what we're looking at in our life as well. Okay, so what's the connection, do you think, of food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality? The connection is, is that in those days, what would happen is, is that they would have these, these great banquets that were dedicated to the gods that they were serving. And while they would have these banquets, then they would have all this uh, meat brought in. I'm assuming that it was all kinds of stuff. You know, they probably had brisket, and they probably had, you know, uh, baby backs. You know, they probably had all the good stuff, right? And they bring it all in, and then the the nature of the dinner was that it was a fellowship meal. So the idea of the fellowship was is that we are here with each other who worship the same gods. And now we are here praying to those gods and we are thanking those gods for the bounty of the earth and the enjoyment of this pleasure with uh, and fellowship with each other. And so because there was a lot of eating and drinking that went on in that communal meal, then the meal would end with sex. People having sex with each other. And so the sexual immorality side of it was not only endorsed but it was, and, and, and uh, permitted, it was promoted by the religion of which they were a part. So when Paul talks about eating food that was dedicated to idols, he's not saying, he's not talking about food that was dedicated to idols, and then, oh, we had this leftover food, so we took it to the marketplace, and there it's in the marketplace, and then now you can buy it in the marketplace. It wasn't that. It was eating food in the midst of this... And then one thing led to another and uh, orgies and other kinds of sexual immorality was part of that. Does that make sense? See, and so that's when he says that enticement to sin, that's the particular sin he's talking about. Now, is, does, is the Bible picking and choosing? This is an accusation that is often levied against the Christian church today. Well, you guys are just picking on certain sin. You know, well, what about the sin of greed? What about the sin of gossip? What about those sins? But, oh, gluttony. Please don't mention that. I, one of the aspects of my spiritual journey to Phoenix, well, yeah, but I feel convicted right at this moment, is that I gained some weight. Holy mackerel. How did that happen? With all the walking around that we did, must be some of the calories we ingested probably was that, yeah. Yeah. I'll have to take that up with the committee next year. And <laughs> oh, <sure. laughs> or not. <laughs> or not, yeah. Okay. All right. So so the so the idea here is that the sin, so when you think in terms of and, and we ought to do this, when you think in terms of the outward manifestation of the sin, which in this case was eating food sacrificed to idols, which is again part of that communal thing, and then sexual immorality. Okay, that was the outward expression of a life that is given over to idolatry. And that's the sin, is idolatry. Because you see what happens when people engage in this, and not just a one-shot deal, but this is how we do our life. What happens is, is that the thing that then becomes the source of satisfaction and the highest good in life is self. It's all about me. And at the end of the day, that's the number one sin because that's the number one commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That's why that's the first one. is because that's the number one thing that we have to battle. And so see, this idea of eating food and community sexual immorality, I mean, that's not good, but that's not the main thing. The main thing is idolatry, and when I give my life over to the other thing, then eventually God isn't even in the picture. In fact, God gets in the way of this, right? Because he is telling me no to me. And that's the problem with idolatry. Okay, makes sense? So he says, likewise, you also have among you those that are hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I don't think I had many notes on that, partly because there weren't any. I was looking around for, you know, like, what? Who are the, Bob, do you know anything about the Nicolaitans?
2: Very little. Yeah. No dictionaries really define it, although the best definition I found was the kind of antinomianism. Yeah. In other words, I can do anything I want to. In the human body. That's and, right. Uh, my spiritual body stays pure.
1: So that's what I picked up on as well, and I kind of included that in the notes here a little bit. If you want to look on page two, um, it was a self-serving lifestyle that flowed out of the attitude that said, it's my body, it's my life, I can do what I want. Well, thank goodness we don't have that around today. <laughs> I mean, really. See, there's nothing new. There's just a regurgitation of everything that's been around. But it, in each generation, we all think, well, this is, this is new. You know, this is unique. This is, and that kind of was, makes it a little bit alluring and, and certainly an enticement. All right? But you see, the idea that I am a master of my own body. Okay, now to some degree, yes. Like in a minimal way. I get to decide if I'm going to brush every morning. And floss every night. I get to decide that. And if I don't, what happens, Max? (laughs) Then I get to decide where my money goes (laughs) after insurance pays, right? If I have it, right? It gets to go to to the dentist. I mean, okay, I I got to decide that. So, there are some aspects of life where you get to decide. You know, you get to decide how many calories you want to take in, how many calories you have to get rid of, that sort of thing. Okay. But that's not what they're talking about here. When somebody says, I'm the master of my own body, I own it. God has nothing to do with it. And so, the biblical approach, and this is where it's counter to the biblical approach, the biblical approach is you're not the owner, you're a steward. So what's the difference between being the owner of something and being a steward of something? And the, the biblical parables in particular in the New Testament are filled with that contrast. Where bad things happen in life if you think you're the owner. Okay. Now bad things happen if you think they're the steward. But it's, it's two different approaches. It's two different philosophies that would guide how you live your life. So what's the difference between being an owner And being a steward. Stewards led by God. Okay, so the God part. Okay, what else? Yeah, Marlene. I
2: think when you're a steward of something, you take care of it. Like we should be stewards of the earth -hmm.
0: also. Yeah.
2: And take care of the earth. Absolutely. And not pollute it and all that kind of stuff. And then saving with our bodies.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: When I got home from my trip, I was so happy That, number one, it wasn't zero degrees. I was very happy about that. I still have a few things to fix out of that. But this time of the year, I love digging in the soil. So I pulled away all the leaves, you know, from the flower beds. And then, like this week, I'm getting the shovel out. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll be turning the soil over. And then, the best of all things. I mean, the cake for me is the shovel, right? But the icing on the cake is when I get to dig into... Somebody gave me two big bins of freshly composted horse manure. Oh. I have died and gone to heaven, let me tell you. And there might be a few surprises in there as well. You never know, right? But, uh, but I've studied this quite a bit, okay? Uh, for sure, we're not going to get to the end of this, right? Um... Is that horse manure has the perfect balance of pH levels that you need. You when it's uh, when it's totally composted, like dry and crumbly, can't even tell that it was horses as opposed to a cow or something else. All right, um, is that you don't have to dilute it. You don't have to add anything to it. Just spread it across the top where you have dug up with your shovel, and then oh my gosh, I go to some place that sells mulch. And then I put the mulch on top of that. You talk about a spiritual experience. It's almost—it's almost like a sacrament for me. That's how it feels. A
2: yeah, and M will do a soil sample for free.
1: Do they They'll really? Tell you
2: Exactly what you need and don't need in your soil. From your
1: I don't need their help. I know. I know perfectly.
2: Well, you might need cow poop.
1: Well, okay. Thank you for that point.
2: And if you're kidding.
1: But I got the—I got the horse. Yeah. I got the horse stuff for free, so, I mean, you know, that was in itself was a pretty good deal. Okay. Pastor, I never realized what we were missing by attending
2: Pastor Coleman's class.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, every once in a while I go off on my own little rabbit moment, you know, and we just go there, right? And then we come back. I mean, that's kind of what... I don't think that he's going to be talking today about... Uh, horse manure <laughs> okay all right so so anyway the deal with the Nicolaitans I mean we see that today don't we right I mean it whatever social what if you call it a social issue moral issue abortion's the biggest one it's my body I can do what I want nobody's going to tell me okay you can feel whatever you feel about abortion on demand as an example okay but when it starts to move into that idea that I own myself, God doesn't, that's idolatry. Okay? That's what that is. And so what, what Jesus is pointing out here to the church is that you've got to stand firm. You can't give in to the pressure of the society that you're around because if you do, then that's the same as renouncing my name publicly And then all from a witness point of view, but also from a faith point of view, is that the more that I compromise on some of those things, eventually it starts to erode my faith in Jesus as the only way to heaven. And there is a correlation, I think, between those that say, well, it's my body, I can do whatever I want, and the idea that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And the correlation is, is that if we're not going to believe on this end, why would we believe on that end? And it becomes a salvation issue. Now, what is the church to do with that? Well, what the church is to do with that is, is that we can still reach out to people who are struggling with that. To people who maybe have experienced abortion in their own lives or have been affected some way by that. There's a lot of wonderful um, godly and many of them are Lutheran ministries that reach out and minister to people that are struggling in that area. So we should never, like, shut the door on it and say, oh, bad people. Never should we do that. And the church sometimes has a history of treating people poorly in that respect, okay? But that's not the same as condoning the belief or condoning the idolatry that accompanies that, okay? Are you hearing me say that? Okay, yeah, okay, good. So um, there is something to be said biblically for the significance of the stewardship aspect versus the ownership aspect. And look at 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And body can certainly mean physical self. It can mean what you do in your life. It certainly can mean everything that encompasses that as well. Okay? So those are, I mean, that's pretty, pretty clear, right, in terms of the difference between the two. But the beauty of it, I think, is that when you, are a, when you view yourself as a steward rather than an owner, th- there is an anxiety that goes along with ownership that is less so when you think of yourself as a steward. When you're a steward, you don't have to be in control of everything. You don't have to be in charge. You don't have to be responsible for everything that everybody does. You don't have to. When you're a steward, what's your job? To take care of whatever it is that the master has entrusted to you, right? That's all. And at the end, when he the master comes back and says, Hey, how'd you do with it? Here's what I did with it. And what does the master say? Well done. well done. Good and faithful servant. You have been in charge of a few things. I'm going to give you a ton of things in the heavenly kingdom. And so isn't it kind of fun to think about what that might be? What do you think it'll be that way for me? Yeah. You wonder if there'll be horse manure in heaven. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. But there won't be any thorns or weeds or any of that stuff, you know, that came along with sin. Isn't that going to be great?
2: You might need it in the Garden
1: That's right. I'll be I'll be kind of walking the garden, <laughs> sweeping up stuff, right? Yeah. Do you do weeds? Do I do weeds? Do I do weeding? Is that what you mean? My are like this. <laughs> oh, Can I get you, to do you know what? Actually, now here's the deal. Here's the deal. Some weeds thrive in certain soils, and if you don't want those weeds, you got to pay attention to that soil. Now I don't know if you know this or not, but Texas A and M offers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what well, maybe you could maybe you could link up with uh, with Leah here and get the information on that. I might I might do that. I'm a little bit more into the organic stuff, you know. And so that's a little bit more of a jazz thing for me to think of, you know, mixing up a witch's brew of some kind, you know, beer and all kinds of stuff, you know, like this and then like this. So, so. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not quite voodoo, but it's, it's almost there,
2: right? Yeah. I do have one quick question. Yeah. I know we're
1: out of time. Oh, yet. good. Yeah. Well,
2: at what point in Lutheran, because I wasn't raised Lutheran, are uh, the kids taught? this um that you are really just a steward of the body and is it outspoken out that you know the abortion thing because I've been with other people in our church that are young girl and they believe in the my body my choice thing right. and it gets really difficult to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, you know
1: yeah the prevailing message of society is strong Yeah, all the uh, promotional advertising is linked to it um, and then social media is filled with that. I mean, it's just everywhere. So our kids get it for sure in their uh, confirmation camp stuff. And some of you that are here that uh, remember that far back of like two years ago of doing that, you will, you'll know that. Is, is that, Autumn, are you kind of doing like that? Okay, so um, so they do. I think the struggle a lot of times is that Somehow we think that if we just fill our kids with the information of it enough that they'll get it. Like, you know, we take their head off the top and we pour it in and then we sew the head back up. And sometimes in churches, and ours would be an example of it, where we put a high premium on education is that we, just, we think that if we just educate them, educate them, educate them. So that's, we're not ever going to get rid of that. We, that you have, we absolutely do that. But I think somehow... Um, the messaging has to go further than that because look what we're up against. Right. I mean, and, and when you, you're getting it in junior high, you're getting it in high school, you're getting it for sure with higher education and undoing some of that indoctrination that has occurred, and I would call it that indoctrination. So I would say to some degree, we want to make sure that there is at least the other voice in there. See, if you don't get the messaging from the church, if you don't get the messaging from the Bible, then there's no other voice in there. The only voice that's in there in your head is the one from the world. So we want to make sure that we we are promoting the other voice so that at least the other voice is there enough that when the voice of the world starts to say stuff about how wonderful that life is, this other voice is going, hey, wait a minute. That did not that go. That did not go, okay? Whether that would prevent somebody from making choices of the world, maybe not, okay? But if they did, then the other voice can kick in and say, but there's people that care about you and love you, and Jesus is one of them, and let's figure out what to do now, okay? So it's a redemptive voice, but sometimes the, the messaging of redemption comes after the fact rather than preventing somebody from doing the thing in the first place. That's okay. We're going to live with that. Okay. Well, guess what? Our time is up. (laughs) Awesome. I feel so much. I feel so at home when we don't get done. So let's just, (laughs) let's sort of go with that. Okay. But, uh, we're going to milk these, we're going to milk these. Okay. So that's what we're going to do with this. All right. Let's close our prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the way in which your word speaks to us. uh, It was written so long ago, Lord, but it was like it was written yesterday because there's so much of what's going on in our world around us that uh, uh, parallels what was going on so long ago. So we thank you for that word. We thank you for the way its enduring message is relevant to us today. That at the end of the day, everything is all about Uh, the way in which you have loved us and saved us and you're going to take us home to heaven someday and that we can live our lives each day in the joy and certainty and the confidence of that. That confidence is tested today, Lord. But guess what? You have won the battle and uh, we are following you. And uh, yes, it might be tough at times, but we can trust in you and we can uh, receive the support of that from each other. So watch over us, Lord, until we're together again. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room. Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement is sharing his light. That means sharing the light that is Jesus Christ and telling others about his gospel. If you want to join us in that mission, please share this podcast with someone that may want to come and better know the light of Jesus. Use one of our past episodes as a starting point to start a discussion with someone, or use a past series as a personal Bible study or devotional for your family or small group. If we've given any value to you at all, consider leaving this podcast a rating and review on iTunes. That will help us climb the iTunes rankings so we may better spread the reassuring good news of Jesus Christ and continue to share His light with anyone willing to listen. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next time... May God bless you throughout your week. Bye.